You're saying that like you meant it this morning. Appreciate that. Matthew chapter 2, two months, we finished the chapter. We are on our way. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, this week, next week, and the week after that is the plan. Matthew chapter 2, 1 to 12. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Father, this morning we are thankful for this clear record concerning days immediately following the birth of Jesus Christ. It's even good to read of such an account when it's not connected to the season of which the usual reading is commenced. We are glad in our verse-by-verse study this morning to come to this birth record, this genealogical emphasis, this particular point being made by the Spirit of God through the pen of Matthew to the hearts of your people. And we pray that as we begin today to unlock the treasures of the text, that the Spirit of God would be our teacher. We pray that we would pay particular attention today to those Old Testament references that uh, the Spirit of God prompted Matthew's heart to note that bring to us such a marvelous sense of perspective concerning your eternal plan, concerning the fulfillment of that plan in Christ in the first advent, and the promise of Additional things has promised to be fulfilled when he who came comes again. 
Bless then your people in study today and in the appropriation of the word of God to heart. We pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. Beth Lahim. Beth house. Lahim. Bethlehem. The little town of Bethlehem in Israel today is under Palestinian authority and is the center of the government for the West Bank. Inside the village limits, I am told that approximately 25,000 people live year-round. Those people are representative of the history of conflict that has brewed there for many generations. The majority of citizens in Bethlehem today are Islamic. About one-third of the population uh, are Jewish, and there is a very small representation of professing Christians. Uh, Bethlehem today entertains about 130 tourists a month when not shut down over warring factions. One modern writer calls Bethlehem, quote, a holy hotspot of a religious mass a holy hotspot of a religious mass. The mass, as referenced, is illustrated by the shop owner who operates the Bethlehem Christmas Tree Souvenir Store. It is located on Milk Grotto Street, right around the corner from the Church of the Nativity. That store kind of illustrates the dynamic of the area. Palestinian authority leaders see, of course, Bethlehem as the world's down payment for a two-state solution in the Middle East, and they would eliminate all Christian claim to the village except for money-making purpose. Like the shop that sells olive wood nativity scenes for Christendom's consumption. Israel has often occupied the West Bank in the modern era, and of course lays claim to it, including Bethlehem, as a part of the land of promise. The little place that is known as the cradle of Christianity remains in our day a place of holy hype and serious conflict. Our study in Matthew is going to help us to cut through the hype, and it's going to help us to center our attention rightly on the little town in Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah. Biblically speaking, Bethlehem of Judah is the place where Rachel, the wife of Jacob, was buried. It is the hometown where Boaz and Ruth lived. It was first called by the name Ephrath in Genesis. It is the place from which the beloved king David came. It is therefore repeatedly referenced as the city of David. Jerusalem, the city of David. And yet we're talking about Bethlehem, the city of David. Uh, today, they're virtually the same. Uh, they're about five miles apart. Uh, the name Bethlehem translates into English the house of bread, based upon, in part, uh, from the fact that the little village was fortified by Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, as a hub for the fertile farmland that was surrounding it. And so historically, the town declined uh, in importance after the reign of David and Solomon, although Rehoboam uh, fortified the city as an agricultural outpost 
Uh, today, we'd say it's the place where the grain elevator uh, was located. Uh, but Matthew is going to help us to see exactly how uh, the place that came to be known as the house of bread is the prophetic key to the correct identity of the one that we know as the bread of life. House of bread, Bethlehem, bread of life, our precious Lord. Matthew selects Micah's prophecy. Micah 5.2. Matthew selects Matthew's Micah's prophecy as the first of four Old Testament prophecies uh, in this second chapter around which to build and develop his messianic promise and premise. Verses 1 to 12 is neatly structured around the restatement of Micah 5.2 as found in our text at verse 6. There can be no doubt as to Matthew's point. The ruler prophesied to be born in Bethlehem is the son of Mary, named by Joseph in simple obedience to the angelic vision, Jesus. For, as the text previously studied said, he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew's focus upon Micah 5.2 at verse 6, 700 years following the prophetic utterance, allows us to see the stir that it caused at the beginning of the first century. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, and of course the Old Testament text reads, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And so we begin our consideration of Matthew chapter 2 with a particular focus upon verse 6 as a quote of Micah 5.2. And when we do that, we can arrange the whole of the storyline, verses 1 to 12, around uh, the prophetic utterance. The first thing that we note is that Herod didn't know that verse of Scripture but became very interested in the prophecy of a born king of the Jews. Herod, of course, was the self-proclaimed king of the Jews as appointed by the Roman rulers of the day. He became interested in the scripture, Micah 5.2, because he wanted to protect his position from every single threat. I don't think that Herod gave a lick of attention to the prophet of Micah. I don't think Herod gave a lick of attention to the Old Testament scriptures, except when it was politically uh, uh, correct uh, or uh, expected for him to do so. Uh, he obviously, in this particular storyline, uh, shows what we might call only a self-serve interest in the B-I-B-L-E. He is not interested personally in reading the Bible. He's not interested personally in studying the Bible. He's not interested in Micah 5.2 at all until it comes to his uh, attention as the wise men appear, asking where is he that is the born king of the Jews. Now that in itself, you have been told, is a slap in Herod's face because if he is anything, he is not a born king of the Jews. 
And so when you're serving as king and wise men come and they ask you, where's the guy that's born to be king? Well, it's a little insulting, even though I'm sure the wise men never intended it to be. He wanted to use, Herod wanted to use the Bible truth for his own will and self-advantage. His lie, verse 8, about the desire to worship the baby when found is self-evident and sadly often repeated. Heavenly expression is often on the lips of politicians, even on the lips of some preachers, only for earthly agendas. Heavenly expressions for earthly agendas. That sin is a sin of politicians. It's a sin of many preachers. It's a sin of many people in the pew. One of the things that is striking about moving to western Michigan and not having been born uh, on this side of the state. Remember, I was born on the other side of the tracks. And uh, one of the things that's unusual about coming to western Michigan is all the God talk. God, 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 God talk. And that stands in great contrast to any sense of God walk. And so the place where for years Christians flocked as the publishing capital of all things Bible is now known for its beer. How embarrassing. The reality is, is that what Herod tried to do, many, many people tried to do, and that is talk God when it fits their own earthly agenda. Verse 3 states that the news of the birth of a king brought trouble or agitation to Herod and to the surrounding area. Now, I would submit that the only reason it brought trouble to the surrounding area is because it brought uh, trouble to Herod. You've heard that uh, uh, popularistic statement about the family that when mother isn't happy, the whole family is unhappy. You've heard that? Somewhere along the line. Well, I tell you, when Herod wasn't happy, the whole area wasn't happy either. Because Herod was the kind of guy that he, uh, he uh, made everybody feel whatever he was feeling. And when he was angry, when he was upset, when he was troubled, oh man, everybody around him had to join him in his trouble. Herod made himself always to be the center of attention in Jerusalem and the greater environments of Judea. And as a result of that, the scripture tells us that because Herod is troubled, upset, the word that, that is used there for trouble in the Greek text reminds me of Sherry's washing machine. That thing goes back and forth and back and forth for a long time uh, just to get out the crud that's in my clothes. And that is called the, because I replaced them, an agitator. And that's the word, agitation. Herod's heart was agitated. And so was the surrounding area. When Herod was troubled, he troubled others. All that said, Herod does provide us, as modern readers of the Holy Spirit's text, Herod provides us a very important, though unwilling, testimony as to the correct view of Jesus when Herod calls the religious leaders together you can see it in the text there uh, uh, he calls first in verse 
uh, as it were, uh, uh, let me find my place here. Uh, he calls together uh, the religious leaders, gathers the chief priests, verse 4, scribes the people together. Here's his phrase. He demanded of them where Messiah should be born. I'm interested in that phrase. He demanded of them where Messiah, where Christ should be born. When he called the religious leaders together and asked them, where is Messiah to be born? That is the first governmental official reference to Jesus in fulfillment to messianic prophecy in the New Testament scriptures. Now we know that the angel brought word to Mary and the angel brought word to Joseph, but they are believers in the Lord uh, and, uh, and uh, that's a little different category of revelation. But here is a governmental leader in the case of Herod, uh, the professing king of the Jews, who is inquiring of his uh, scholars the name of the place where Messiah is to be born. And then, of course, what's Matthew going to do? Tell us that that's where Jesus was born. So that you and I can make the connection. So that we can begin to see the uniqueness of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. First official reference to Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy in historical sequence. Now, we'll have much more to say about Herod next week and even the week after that. But for right now, we're going to move on. But just note what Herod did here. We'll come back to it at the end. And that is that Herod loved to use the Bible. He loved to use the Bible, but only for his own earthly agenda. He wanted to learn verses, but only, only for the purpose of his own earthly agenda. Number two, the religious leaders, of course, they knew the verse, Micah 5.2, but remained very disinterested. The thing that strikes me in reading again this familiar account is the level of disinterest in the religious leaders of the day. It was the job of the religious leaders to know the Old Testament scripture, and they did. They did their job. But they were not at all interested personally in this uh, potential fulfillment. And the question would be, why wouldn't they be? And the answer would be, because they liked things the way they were. They were not interested in what Jesus had come to do. And that is always true of man-made religion. Uh, they were interested in themselves. They didn't feel any particular threat, as did Herod, thinking that any messianic uprising would be political in nature. I believe their attitude was, old king, new king, doesn't matter to us. We got our own religious thing going. We'll just keep the doors open and keep the thing being perpetuated. And so amazingly, we're confronting the aspect here of people that are known to be religious, and they do know the scriptures, which is their job, and yet they don't show any personal engagement with those scriptures, 
nor do they rejoice that word has come that Messiah's time has arrived. They are just kind of matter of fact about the matter. Again, their attitude was old king, new king, Herod, Jesus, whoever it is, we don't care. We've got our thing going, and we'll keep our thing going uh, 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 no matter uh, who is in charge. Someone might have said it this way, kings come and go, but our thing continues to be the same. Kings come and go, but our thing continues to be the same. I've actually heard people in a local church say, pastors come and go, but our thing remains the same. Pastors come and go, but our thing remains the same. Things that appear to work are often reduplicated and perpetuated without biblical sense or unction. One of the great dangers of a local church with a long history, and we got one. Every time I meet anybody local, met a guy yesterday that was the owner of Wolverine Water working with a house next door that is for sale and he stopped by the house and he and his wife were walking around and and uh, they were doing so longer than usual so I decided to be nosy <laughs> and so I walked across the yard and introduced myself and we were talking and whenever I introduce myself to uh, people in the area I always say yeah I pastor the church that was established before Abraham Lincoln was the president that's kind of my go-to thing that's kind of my go-to statement when I reference the First Baptist Church of Elto. I pastor a church that was here and active with testimony for Christ before Abraham Lincoln was the president. That's a long time. And one of the dangers of uh, ministry with a long personal history is that things get reduplicated, things get re replicated, things get perpetuated just because we've always done them. And there's no sense in, you know, reinventing the wheel, as they say. If things are working, and they are working well to the glory of God, well then, why not? Just keep that going. But there's a danger, and the danger is, is that you and I begin to defend the fixtures that have been established over many, many, many years, when those fixtures may not at all represent the opportunity that we have in Christ today. And so the reality of the moment was, here's a religious group of men. They're inquired of uh, the king, uh, the place where Messiah is to be born. They say, oh, yeah, yeah, we know, yeah, we got it. Looked it up again, just make sure we got the, the right scroll number. Just looked it up, yeah, okay, here it is, king. It's Micah 5-2, and Messiah is going to be born in uh, Bethlehem. There you have it. Oh, the casualty of their religious response to Messiah. Can you be casual toward the Christ and live? Not for long. And yet we so, see no energy in these religious leaders whatsoever 
They had the Bible thing down. They had their doctrines well written and prescribed. They had, they had uh, as it were, a, a real sense of the external expression uh, of, uh, of their faith coming out of the Hebrew Scriptures uh, nailed down. But they showed no great love for God nor his promises fulfilled. But they knew the Bible verse. They could give you the reference. They could tell you how to parse the Hebrew verbs. But nonetheless, they show no love and energy towards the reality in this moment. They simply tell the king exactly what he asked for. And I'm quite confident that when they were done, Done with that, I hope he's satisfied because you know what kind of guy he can be. I mean, I'm just sure there was attitude there all the way around. Well, that brings us then to the Magi, the wise men, who, of course, didn't know this verse by nature of their background and engagement until they come to know the verse as a result of their studies and exposures. And the thing that's amazing about the wise men is that though they didn't know the verse by way of generational emphasis of the Old Testament scriptures brought to them as a people, nonetheless, they acted upon the hearing of it and righteously. In verse 2, we are told of the star that followed the Magi, which had to be a supernatural light prepared for the purpose, not some alignment of the stars and planets. In verse 2, the star is personalized as his. See that? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Because of the reference to the star is his, Again, I would advocate we see the star as a supernatural light prepared for the purpose and not some alignment of stars or planets. It moves. The star moves. The star appears and disappears regardless of cloud cover. Uh, The star ultimately, after the wise men leave Herod, moves five miles to the south of Jerusalem, leaving the wise men leading the wise men to Bethlehem, and rest upon the place uh, where Jesus is in the house. Verse 11. Now, I take note of the fact that the, uh, that the scientists tell us that all planetary uh, star movement is east to west. Star movements are never north to south. And so the fact that this star moved to the south in order to lead the wise men who are in Jerusalem to the south a little bit to go to Bethlehem, defies the aspect of normal star movement. Again, I I would find myself agreeing with the good Bible scholars that say that this particular light was likely a return of the Shekinah glory that led ancient Jewish people under Moses. These magi are important in the text because, of course, they are Gentile worshipers. And in that sense, they represent me. And in that sense, they represent many of you. Uh, They were Gentile worshipers. 
that uh, had been influenced by the stories and the culture of exiled Jews dating back to the time of Jeremiah and the Babylonian captivity. Question, where did these wise men get their information? I'll more to say about that next week, but for today, let me just say that these wise men were tremendously impacted by the exile of faithful Jewish individuals starting during the days of Jeremiah under the Babylonian captivity, and as a result of that, they came under the exposure of truth concerning the Jewish Messiah. And hearing upon that and seeing the star in the east and identifying it as his, they set forth to follow it. And that is a marvel in of itself. And nonetheless, they come and enter the house where the child is. And as Gentiles, they fall down and worship baby King Jesus, presenting their gifts fit for a king to the family. Details of which, of course, you are all very, very familiar. These wise men prove in their response, as recorded here in Scripture, that they are wise. That they're wise by God's own standards. They're wise because they are responding to the word of truth given to them uh, and, uh, and their response to the word of God that is given to them uh, not only causes them to be prompted to go out on a long journey. Uh, you know, you think about what drives the missionary in missionary service. The truth of God's word. And what is it that drives these wise men uh, to go to the place where Christ is to be born? Well, the truth of God's word is driving them, as it were. And uh, not only are they driven to the place, but when they get there, they're marked by adoration and gift-giving. Because they were people impacted by the truth, they created a moment of adoration and gift-giving. Let me say it again. Because they were people impacted by the truth, they created a moment of adoration and gift-giving. Because they were people of the truth, they create a moment of adoration and gift-giving. So why did you come today? You see, the gathering of a church is the gathering of people that are impacted by the truth to have a moment of adoration and gift-giving. God, who needs not, not, not our gifts, tells us that we can show our trust in him by giving gifts. And so, uh, when's the last time you woke up on a Sunday morning and you said, Man! I am a person impacted by the truth of God, and I get to go to church. I get to go to church today and bring my adoration to God publicly and give gifts. What a wonderful thing to do. So, would you be numbered among the wise men of old? Are you here today as a wise man and a wise woman or just a wise guy? Say a lot about those wise men. When you consider, however, the whole of response as indicated in this text to the truth of God's word, you have a marvelous review of some possible responses 
to the truth of Jesus Christ even in this very hour. Number one, some like Herod only seek to know the scripture that they might use it for their own agenda. They might well quote the Bible, but their lives and plans are contrary to Christ. Or let me say that again. They might well quote the Bible, but their life and their plans are anti-Christ. And even if those people do gather, even if they do come, even if they do propose that they are going to be numbered among those who gather to adore the Lord and worship the Lord in the spirit and in truth, uh, uh, those are people that can't keep their eyes off the clock. Those are people that can't wait for the service to be done. And the best service they ever attended in their entire life was the shortest one. During the days when I traveled for those eight years between Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary and Spurgeon Baptist Bible College uh, down in Mulberry, Florida, in those eight years when I was on the road, different church every Sunday, sometimes two different churches every Sunday, uh, it was always amazing to me how much time uh, was given over in, in our brand of churches to the actual opportunity for preaching. And uh, I've told you, many of you before, that I, I just lamented over the aspect that we had so many things. I, I, I remember one service in particular where the youth pastor jumped up on the platform and took 35 minutes of the morning worship hour to tell people about what was going to happen with the youth in the next two, three weeks. And, uh, and when the, the service was to be turned over to me, the pastor leaned across the, the, the chairs on the platform and said, I know it's 10 to 12, and, uh, and we're usually out of here by 12, but you feel free to take an extra five or 10 minutes. There are times as a pastor you'd like to beat up your fellow pastors. I'm telling you that there are times when you would. I didn't, and I preached in 10 minutes. I finished my sermon at noon, right on the top of the hour. I never went a second over. But it's awful hard for me today to think well of that church as to their commitments and as to their processes when so much of the hour was all about the people and so little of the hour was anything to do with God. Oh, God help us, lest we have worship our way. Because we have worship for our convenience rather than the pleasure of God. Some, like Herod, only seek to know the scripture that they might use it for their own agenda. Secondly, some are religious, like the chief priests and scribes. They delight in the knowledge of the scripture and the participation in religious service, but possess not the Holy Spirit. They are content in their Christianity without any personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Bible knowledge, sure, but without any practical spiritual value. I've said it in recent weeks again because of the unique coming together of what we're studying in Hebrews next, in the hour coming, as well as this new study in Matthew. Uh, as well as other venues from education with an emphasis on adults. I'm not teaching, but on holiness and, 
the emphasis that we're making right now uh, to the children relative to the doctrine of salvation. But in all the venues of teaching and preaching ministry of the church, even on Wednesday night, as it relates to the summer series under the, under the banner of Auxilium El Ab Elto, Help from on High, uh, we have been emphasizing this idea of the character uh, uh, demand of the scripture placed upon the people of God to not just know it, but to live it, to walk it, to practice it, as all of you know so well. It is the inherent nature of all things religious to put on a show, to create some hype. And the reality of relationship often suffers. And then some, praise God for these, some are wise. <laughs> like the wise men were wise, following God's revealed light in Scripture, worshiping the Savior, and presenting themselves as gifts worthy of the King of Kings. Now, every time you prepare for a sermon, every time you prepare a text for the Word of God for presentation, especially when you know you're going to be returning to it in another week, and in this case, a week after that, uh, when you have these kind of extended opportunities in the Lord, uh, you usually uh, mull uh, the aspect of the truth that you're dealing with for that week uh, over the course of the entire week in which you prepare. I call that soak time. You, uh, you let the text, you let the sermon, you let the, the word of God soak in your soul as you observe life and continue to talk to God and continue to walk with the Lord. Well, the thing this week that, that came out of the flow of that soak time had to do with uh, the star and the simple reality that the wise men followed the star and the star faithfully took them to Christ. In that sense, the star was a faithful guide. And then I started thinking about this thought. Because I'm an American, because I'm a Michigander, because I'm the son of a tool and die maker, although Dawn played today, I'm a child of the king. Uh, uh, the reality is, is that while I, I have these human orientations in my life, and, uh, and, uh, and therefore might think thoughts like this. Man, I wish we had a star. I wish God would put a star in the sky for me. I wish when I had to the dealership to get a new car that a star would guide me and come right over the top of the hood of the, of the Chevrolet. If it was a Ford, I'd say, wrong star, move. But nonetheless, over the hood... As a General Motors brat, you got to think that way. You know, that's my human orientation. I drive a Ford truck, by the way. But anyhow, how often we, in a corny way, read something marvelous in the Scripture and think it has no organic connection to our lives, except to lust after what those wise men had. A star in the sky to take them right to Jesus. Don't you and I have a star? Is the star in the sky? No. Where is the star? It's in our hands. 
Of course, there are people on the earth, Joe can tell you, there are people on the earth that don't have the word of God, don't have the star, the guiding star, to take men and women to Christ, as do you and I, and thereby we continue to work on that. But the reality is, we have a star, and that is the scripture. The scripture is our star leading us to Christ. The scripture is our star leading us to Christ. The scripture is our star leading us to Christ. Say it. The scripture is our star leading us to Christ. Say it. The scripture is our star leading us to Christ. So tonight, we're going to have a fellowship time and a cookout. Do we have to have a Bible time when all we want to do is just get together and have a little fun, eat a few burgers and weenies? Answer, yes! Why? Because the Scripture is our star leading us to Christ. And I'm telling you, you don't need to be led to Christ just once on the personal salvation, but time and again and again and again, day after day and hour after hour, you and I must be led to Jesus. And the scripture is our star to lead us to the Lord Jesus. Be a wise man. Be a wise woman. Follow the star that God has placed in your hands. And I trust by the Spirit of God in your heart. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to open the star of the Scriptures and to read of Christ. Throughout this Sunday morning worship hour opportunity, we are seeking to make the biggest of deal upon our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Help us with our sense of welcome and reception of him as we read of him and study of him in the pages of Holy Scripture. And help us to be wise in our responses of adoration and gift-giving. And help us, dear Lord, to be wise and to walk circumspectly because these are evil days. We thank and praise you for the stability that you've brought to the lives of your people. We ask your hand upon this flock this morning in response. We pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.